Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 19th, 2015. This is episode 1628 of the Survival Podcast. And today, we're going to talk about a subject we really haven't talked about in quite a while. We're going to talk about buying land. And we're going to talk about five common problems with buying and owning land. And I'm actually going to change what the what the special guest today, Mr. Scott Todd, has to say about it. Instead of problems, uh, when I look at them, I think, there's five landmines that can blow your financial leg off if you're not careful. Uh, we're going to talk about those and how to avoid them. And we're going to talk about how to find that piece of land of your dreams. Uh, how to figure out how to finance it, etc., how not to make those five mistakes and blow off your financial leg um, by stepping on that fi financial landmine. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and help make sure that the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to HarvestEating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First, you can find the stuff that he sells, his organic teas, his spices, seasoning mixes, and other products. I use Chef Keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis pretty much. Uh, if I'm not re reaching for uh, the northern Italian, I'm probably reaching for low and slow or Montana steak or the new prime rib stuff or the chicken curry. It's just all awesome. He also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe and cooking, how to make cooking a life skill, how to cook seasonally and locally. Uh, he's got a lot of great videos on his website, a lot of great blog posts, a lot of great recipes, and he's got an awesome podcast. You can find it all at HarvestEating.com. And remember, Chef Keith is a member of our expert council. If you have a, a question about cooking, you get it into me, and we'll get you an answer for it on a Friday show. Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com, long-term spo sponsor, great partner, great fellow prepper, and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at HarvestEating.com. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber. They have a deal for you in the member support brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long.
Next up, I'd like to remind you about the Member Support Brigade. The Member Support Brigade is something you can join. It's how you support this show. The cost of that comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. Let's round it up to 20 cents. Two dimes. If every time you listen to the show, you think, you know, that, that show is worth 20 cents a day. It really is. Um, I'm willing to support it at 20 cents a day, then join the MSB. Then after you do that, log into the MSB, get the $200 worth of free downloads like the day you join, and then start looking at all the great benefits and all the great discounts from over 60 companies, the discount things you're probably going to be buying here and there anyway over the next year, and realize that you'll get all your money back in discounts alone, and maybe you'll become what many people have become in the Member Support Brigade, a member for life. Check it out. It's how you can support the work we do. Make sure the show is always here. Help us pay our bills and continue doing the work that we do, which is freeing the minds and freeing the bodies of, of people around the world by teaching them how to be self-sufficient. That's that's what this show is really all about, guys, and the MSB is how I'm able to do just that. Next up, I want to remind you guys, uh, or actually tell you guys about the year that was the episode, the year being 1628, uh, because the episode 1628, I've got um, I've got three here for you. I've got Vasa is sinking. This X project has failed. That's a ship design issue. I also have Salem, the city of peace and escape. Yes, that's Salem, the one you're thinking of, but that's not the story about it today. And I also have the rise of the sweet potato. Kind of want to read that one. I really do. But I'm not going to. I'm going to read Salem, the city of peace and escape, because Salem is so notoriously known for another reason. John Endicott leads a group of investors to establish a colony in New England. He marches off the boat with 60 other colonists and joins a few fishermen already at the site. This is the founding of Salem. Currently, a land grant is issued by the Old Plymouth Company. By next year, King Charles I will certify the charter, creating a company of Massachusetts Bay in New England. Something critical will be left out of the charter, though. Unlike the Virginia Charter, the Massachusetts Bay Legislature will not be required to check back with England for final approval on their laws. This little omission will create a massive loophole that will allow English Puritans to escape persecution from King Charles and William Laud and the Archbishop of Canterbury. They will create their own laws in Massachusetts. My take by Alex Shrug. The word, word Salem is the English version of the Hebrew word Shalom, which means peace or completion. There was a tendency on the part of the Puritans and the more radical separatists, also known as pilgrims, to use the Old Testament texts to inform their actions. They would study Jewish texts, and the pilgrims carried a small Hebrew-English word list in order to check their understanding of the original texts. I recommend that modern Bible study includes something like Strong's Concordance to check these critical words to make sure you know what you think you know about a particular Bible verse. I'm not saying the translators are wrong, but Hebrew doesn't work like English, so translators are limited to what they can do when translating from Hebrew into English. Um, this makes me think of a story uh, about the Mongols. And a word, I can't remember even where I heard this story, but a word that a, a person visiting somewhere in either Russia where it borders Mongolia or Mongolia itself was trying to understand. And basically the best they could do is this is when you, you bury your enemies up to their neck and trample them with your horses. And you don't have a word for this? <laughs> Not that it's an ongoing thing, but it was an historical thing that apparently was known in the area. It's like, you don't have a word for this? 
I, I think there are a lot of language barriers uh, in the world and across linguistics, but I think there's also a lot of language barriers in modern English today between you know what people hear and what people are saying. Uh, an example to me would be the word capitalist. So there's two schools of thought on capitalism and the basic two schools, and I'm not talking about people that run this world. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about everyday Americans that polarize to one side or the other that say capitalism is good or say capitalism is bad. And you'd think, well, at least they disagree and they both understand this word. It's a well-understood word, and the word capitalism means the same thing to both of them. They just disagree about it. Well, it doesn't. And it doesn't even not mean the same thing the way that you and I think it does. So what you and I would generally think, and I don't think this way anymore because I've explored this, but what most people in modern day would think is, well, the problem is we haven't actually had a capital system. This is not a capitalist nation. And when you're saying there's all these problems with capitalism, that, that, that's, that's inferring that that's what we had. And yeah, the other side might believe what they're looking at is capitalism, but we are literally defining the word differently. To the people that are generally pro-capitalist, this is what capitalism means. Capitalism means being able to operate a business for profit and retain the profits from your business. That's what that means. It means to have freedom and control of your business. To the anti-capitalists, capitalism means to be able to control the capital itself. In other words, capitalism to the anti-capitalist is the banking system that you hate too. But we've been diametrically separated from each other because both of us have been fed a different definition of the word one that matches our individual worldviews. And therefore, we absolutely know what we know. I know this is right because I know what it means to me, and therefore these other people are opposed to what I want. These other people don't even think the little girl selling freaking lemonade should be able to keep her five bucks at the end of the day without giving the state some money. And what the other side generally is saying, not the dyed-in-the-wool Democrats and Republicans, the independent thinkers on both sides are saying, hey, no, what I don't think is that somebody should be able to control the world's money supply. That's capitalism. Capitalism is the control of the capital. You might just find if those two sides talk to each other, they might have some solutions that are far more common than you think, given capitalists and anti-capitalists being the names that we would give them, or libertarian and socialists being the names that we would give them. But if we can't actually use the word and have it mean the same thing to both people, we can't discuss the word logically, and therefore we bifurcate into a dichotomy, and we're easily controlled by our masters. My take by Jack Spirico. Um, with that, let's go ahead and get into our main topic of today's show. I think land ownership is one of the most important things that we can do for ourselves for freedom and liberty. And I know there's a libertarian anarcho community out there that says, you'll never really own it because you have to pay taxes on it. Well, I can't help you. You're making an excuse because you don't want to do what's necessary to own land. Because you, you know you're full of shit. You know that's that's not accurate. You know that's bullshit. And, and basically what you're saying is, since I can't figure out how to do it, I'm going to say that it's not desirable. That's, that's what I think 99% of people that use that excuse have to say. Because even with paying property tax on land, there's very few things out there that can actually do more to increase your individual wealth, 
your individual freedom and liberty, especially if you avoid the five landmines we're going to talk about and you buy in the right place for what you want to accomplish with that land and at the right price point. So the person that says that, my, my question is, do you ever drink a beer? Yeah, well, you pay a tax on the beer, so you don't really own the beer, right? Does that prevent you from buying the beer? By your logic, it should. You should never buy a beer. You should make your own beer from, I don't know, becoming a native and chewing some kind of fruit and spitting it in a bowl and letting natural fermentation happen and drink that swill, right? You don't, you mean, come on. You don't really own it, so it's not yours, so don't buy it. You got me? Right. So I think that there's just this fabulous opportunity with land ownership, especially many of you guys that want to, to form small businesses, form self-sufficient homesteads, or simply make land a, a part of your investing for your future wealth. And, and all of those are good. I think the smartest among you are thinking, I want to do all that. I want a bug-out location. I want a place to hunt. I want a place that I live. I want land for investment. I want land for agricultural purposes. I, I want it all. Maybe I won't ever have it all, but I want it all. Well, it can do all of those things. And it can be one of the most stable components in a wealth portfolio. But there's a problem with that. There's a problem with that? Yes, there is. And the problem is because it's such a powerful asset. It has led people many times to believe that it's safe. It's just safe. You can't. Nothing can go wrong if you buy land and you buy houses or whatever. You can always get your money back at least. And property always goes up in value. And it's such a low-risk thing that people get excited and emotional and make an emotional choice on the purchase of land. There's very few things we do this with other than real property. When it comes to investments, vehicles we get emotional with, but we shouldn't. But also, we don't ever see vehicles as investments unless we're buying like a, uh, a Shelby uh, Mustang or something like that, right? We, we, we don't see them as investments. We understand they're a depreciating asset, but we get emotional with real property. So when we're buying a stock, unless we're stupid, we don't get emotional over buying uh, ABC Company. We buy it because it has you know, a good uh, P.E. ratio and pays a good solid dividend. It's got uh, somebody at the helm that seems to know what they're doing, and it, it seems like it has upside in the market. That's how you buy an investment, right? But when we turn around and we buy real property, we get all emotional. I, I'm in love with this piece of property. Don't do that. Don't do that because the sucker you think you can sell it to when you're not in love with it anymore may not be in love with it. Land is an asset. It's a, it's a commodity like anything else. You have to be very, very cold and calculating with dealing with real estate. And if you'll do that, you could be very successful with making land and real property a component of your wealth. To talk about all of that, to talk about five ways you can blow your financial leg off with it, I want to bring on right now Mr. Scott Todd. Scott, man, how you doing? Welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, I'm uh, really honored to be here. Jack, thanks for having me, and uh, look, look forward to you know, hearing from more from you on this topic. Cool. I'm happy here to hear from you on it, so <laughs> let's kind of move in that direction. Before we get into it, though, we're here to talk about uh, land ownership and what you call five common problems. I, I've already referred to them in the introduction more of like financial landmines when I read what they were, because I'm like, yeah, you, you don't want to do that. But before we dig into that, can we just start out with how did you get into land, period, real estate, land investing? Like when you were you know, 10 years old and in grade school picking your nose, you think, I'm going to grow up and buy a bunch of land one day. Or did it, you kind of take the wonky path that most people do to end up where they end up at? 
Yeah, you know, it's it's. Uh, I started off uh, with an interest kind of in tax lien certificates, and and for years and years and years, I invested in tax lien certificates as a as a vehicle to like build up some retirement income, you know, uh, save for later. And then what I noticed was that there was just a lot of a lot of like tax lien certificates out there on raw land. And I'm like, what is going on here? I mean, land, it's, it's the most precious commodity out there. It, it doesn't die. It's, it's out there forever. And I started looking into it and, and it kind of just really piqued my interest that, man, there's a lot of land out there and there's a lot of purposes for land. But, you know, the problem is, and what, what most people find, especially when you look at like these, you know, tax lien certificates is that there's a lot of problems with land. <laughs> Uh, that's built up over time, and that's kind of where where we are today is with kind of these like as you call them landmines, right? Yeah. Do you think that people are more likely to step into them because land is such a great investment that they they tend to think it's just it's so safe. I'm, I I can't do anything stupid, and there's a lot of stupid things you can't do. Yeah, I, I think what happens is um, one, it's it's easy to get into land, right? I mean, it's not like you're buying a house. It's uh, land is is for the most part, land is pretty cheap, depending on where you, where you are. But when, when you look at just a land by itself, raw land, it is pretty cheap. I think people put their guard down because a lot of times they don't have kind of the the banks or other people looking over their shoulder to make sure that hey, this is this is this is an issue. And you know that said, I mean, you you can buy land from a bank or with, with bank financing, but a lot of it is not done through through banking because they don't really want to touch it. So they don't have that you know that that oversight from other professionals that's really going to look out for their best interest. And as a result, you start to get into these to these issues. I think there's like an emotional component too when I think about it. Like when, when I'm deciding whether or not I want to buy an ETF or a stock. Uh, if I think the opportunities there, there might be a little bit of that, like, you know, potential loss type emotion, but you can rein that in pretty well. But people fall in love with land. They fall in love with a, a building. They fall in love with a house or the idea of living somewhere. And I think that takes logic out of the equation. And the way I put it, I think, is you have to be kind of more logical with land than you do with some other investments because there there's so many ways to misread things and there's so many things that could be there that you didn't know were there so you have to be almost mechanical with your decision no matter how much the emotional part of you really wants a certain piece of property yeah and you, you got to ask a lot of questions too you know and and you know like I I sell I sell a lot of land and I got to tell you a lot of people don't ask a lot of questions you know they 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 see it uh, and like you said, they make that emotional connection and then they just, they have to have it, they, you know, for whatever reason. And they don't know why. I mean, that's, that's a blanket statement. I mean, people do know why in, in most of the time, but there are cases where people just don't know why they want the land. And they'll tell me, I'm like, ask, I ask them, like, what are you looking to get out of this? And well, I, I don't know. I just want to own land. You know, it's, it's like, uh, someone told them, Hey, land is, uh, running out of, of, um, you know, we're running out of land and so you better go buy some. And so they feel like this, this urgent need to go buy it and they don't stop and pause and make sure like this is really the right property for what, what I want long term. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with all of this said, what, what is it that you feel makes land such a solid investment, such a, a great place to, to put some of your wealth? Look, it's it's uh, it's it's not going away. You know, uh, I mean, you, you could argue maybe California coast could go away or something, but essentially, you know, land does not go bad. It doesn't stale. In terms of an investment, you know, what I what I hate about the stock market 
is I hate the fact that someone else is controlling my kind of my destiny with, you know, management issues and, you know, who knows on what given day a CEO is going to blank out and just have a, a bad quarter or, you know, accounting issues or, or whatever. And then there goes my investment. And so I think that when you look at land, you know, land prices over the course of time continue to go up. There's there are periods of time where they go down, as, as you can imagine, during the, the recession and, and the like. But o- over a longer period of time, good quality land does not uh, go out of favor. And I think that it, it's cheap to own, too. It's cheap to, to hold. Taxes are cheap. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of maintenance on on land. And so, you know, if you're going to buy land with a purpose, it really becomes a great investment. Okay, so when we, we're looking at that, again, we're kind of going in a circle here back to where, yeah, that's all great, so we, we sometimes do dumb things when it comes to buying land. What are the five land ownership you know, pitfalls you see? As I say, they're, they could be financial landmines uh, yeah. if you don't avoid them when it comes to buying land. What are those big mistakes people make, and the, how do we avoid them? Yeah, the, the top five. Here, here, here we go. These are ones that I see every single week. One. They're buying land without confirming that the deed is transferable. And what I mean by that is a lot of people will buy with, you know, like a quick claim deed. And this is really one of the other top fives is they, they don't necessarily buy correctly. And they end up owning land that they can't go back and transfer. And as a result, they're paying taxes over a longer period of time uh, that they bought land from someone who really didn't have the, the right to even sell the land. And the way that you avoid that is you really, it's a simple call. Let's, let's go to the, to the recorder's office or the clerk's office online and find out who is the owner of the property. Let's do a simple title search. There's cheap ways of doing title search if you're not going to go through a realtor or, or buying land, uh, through kind of a title company. You can go, you can go to titlesearch.com, for example. And for, uh, as low as a hundred and, $115, you can actually get a title search that's, that's used by title companies across the, the globe, escrow companies and title companies. So you don't have to pay, you know, three or four hundred dollars to get a title search, but know who you're buying the land from and make sure that they actually have the right to transfer the property and that it is transferable. Jack, let me give you an example. Um, I, one of the common things I see is um, someone tries to calls me up and says, hey, I, I want to sell you our land. And I'm like, okay, and let's look at it. How'd you get the land? And they tell me, oh, it was it was willed to me. You know, my my father or my sister, they when they passed away, it was in their will. And land has to be probated. It's not like a bank account that you can leave in a will. And too many times people are selling land that they were willed, if you will, and they can't they don't even have the right to sell the land, but yet they've been t- paying taxes on this land for years and years and mm-hmm. years. And, you know, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news for him, but I have to tell him, like, did it go through probate in the state that the land is located in? And all too often times the answer is no. I'd say nine times out of ten that I run to that, the answer is no. And, you know, when you look at taking something through probate, like land through probate, that's a minimum of, of let's say, $1,000, probably more like 1500 to 2000 just for one piece of property. And unless they are going to reap the benefits much higher than that, they're just not going to do it. What 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 could possibly have happened that let's say you know my 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 great uncle had a piece of land that, that the family's owned for a hundred years 
And uh, Great Uncle Pete kicks off, and I go to his will reading, or somebody notifies me that he left this piece of land to me. And I go down there to get that piece of land. I decide, well, I want to sell it. What? How, how is it possible that land, land's not transferable? What What are the things that are in the way? I mean, I know you're saying looking for clear title and all, but wh- how how does that happen? Yeah, so it's missing. Yeah, you know, like okay, so here, here's a scenario. I was just working with someone the other day. Their their um, their husband, who is now deceased, went and bought land in Florida, okay. and they put it in their name only. So he was a married individual, and he bought land in his own name, and then he deceased. So then what happened is the land transfers, it does transfer through the will to the, to the wife. But what happens is, is because it's not, um, because land is real property, you have to take that land through probate in this case in Florida. Okay. And, and, you know, unlike other things, uh, like a bank account, for example, you can leave a bank account to your wife through, through your will. Sure. But real property, you can't do that. And so, that's kind of that kind of leads me into the next kind of landmine is not holding title correctly, and that really is the fact that you know if you if you're not holding title correctly, and what I mean by that is if you're married, uh, you should hold title in uh, with with joint tenants of rights of survivorship, because what that means is that if you were to pass away, then your wife continues her her ownership of that, and it doesn't have to be your wife. It could be a niece, a nephew, a brother, a sister. It can be you can have joint tenants with rights of survivorship with anybody, not just a, a married individual. And so if you don't title it correctly, then what happens is upon your death, then they actually have to take that land through probate in every, like in every, like in the state in which it's located. So if you're, if you're living, you know, in, in this case I gave you earlier, they're living in Mississippi and the land is in Florida. They have to now pick up and go to to Florida to, to take it through probate there. And that's expensive. And they're just not going to do it, you know, like they're, they're just not going to do it. So what's going to end up happening is the county is going to end up back with that land because they're just going to stop paying the taxes on it. And all of that's for nothing. They wasted all their money because they didn't hold title correctly. Hmm. So, so what you're saying is with this joint, joint right of survivorship, there, then that can't happen. That it's like if, if it, and it could be anybody, any two people, let's say you and I decided we wanted to invest in a common piece of land. If we set that, that up between us, even though we maybe never even looked at each other in the face, certainly don't share common blood, the minute you or I die, the other one, it just happens. It, it now becomes that sole property. That's it. It's, it's uh, because you and I are, are equals, and then it's because of the words joint tenants with rights of survivorship, it transfers over to if you were to pass away and you and I are on the title like that, then it transfers over to me. Is now, there any limit to the number of 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 parties there? Could it be four people or what? Yeah. I'm, I don't really think that's a good idea, but I mean, it's an interesting thought. Yeah. So, you know, it, there, there really isn't a, a limit. And, um, you know, a, 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 a smart example is there's someone else I was dealing with who they were ready to sell their land and, and every, everybody is still alive. But she actually, when she titled the property, she actually titled it to her, her niece and her nephew. And again, all three of them are alive, but, uh, essentially, if something would have happened to her, then her niece and nephew would have been the the sole owners of the property that they that they could just present to the county a death certificate from their from their aunt in this case, and the tra- the property would have transferred right over to them without ever having to go through probate. 
Gotcha. Okay. But is there, is there is there another danger there? Because if people don't understand that they have to do at least what you just said, is it possible that those two people could pass away? No one ever questions it. They pay the taxes on it. They don't make that presentation to the county. They leave it to somebody else, and and now it's kind of like a lost land of the lost thing. And the person that's trying to get claim of the land may have problems. Yeah. The 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 way. Um, the way that you get around that is, let, let's say in that scenario where we had the three people and the two the two younger ones died, leaving the the aunt in this case, then the aunt does have to take the aunt does have to take action before her own death mm. to remove them from the deed. Otherwise, to your point, it's all for naught, right? Like there has to be one surviving member of that joint tenants of rights of survivorship. Uh, in order to take the title on. Otherwise, then it has to go through probate of the last surviving um, own, owner. So if if the, the niece and the nephew were to pass away, leaving the aunt, and the aunt doesn't take action on it before she passes away, then again, that, that, that property is no longer transferable by her estate until it goes through probate. Gotcha. Um, one of your other big things, and this is – I'm big on this with everything, but especially when you're buying property, is not having an exit strategy. Um, when this nation went into uh, the, the war in the Middle East, one of the biggest criticisms was we don't have an exit strategy. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying a whole lot of people sitting in front of their TV chanting, you know, that, that re repeating that, uh, we're buying homes with no exit strategy. And, and we're talking more about raw land and, and larger pieces of land today, but it's the same concept. You you go into uh, something this this large of a purchase, and then well, what do you do if you need the money back, or what do you do if something doesn't work out, or you can't make a payment? And people don't know; they just assume it'll be okay. Yeah, and you know, like the, the way I the way I approach life, and it's just my own you know uh, kind of approach is I, I kind of do take the Stephen Covey approach, which is begin with the end in mind, right? Uh, if, if you don't know, again, to, to your point, how you're going to get out of something, then you shouldn't do it, right? You know, it, it, and it doesn't have to mean like... Really? Right? No! It's, it's genius, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I just quoted someone, I'm a genius. No. The, um, the, the fact is, in everything that you do, I mean, you may not know exactly how, okay, I'm going to sell the land at this point in time, but if you don't even know what you're going to do with the land, then you shouldn't get into the land. And it's just like that with any, it doesn't matter if it's any investment, you know, stocks, bonds, whatever, you, you, you better have a way, you know, okay, this is where I'm getting out, right or wrong. You know, uh, if, if I made a bad decision on a stock and it goes down, my, my, my cut, cut loss is 10% or whatever your number is. And I think it's the same way with land is that at some point, really, you know, at some point you have to figure out, okay, I'm buying this piece of property because I want I want the result to be this, and then you go and you work that plan, and then you know you can pass that that property on to generation to generation to generation if you want, and really that becomes the exit strategy is I'm going to pass this on. But then think about the last two things that we talked about. You you better go back and title it correctly, and you 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 got to make sure that it never falls into that first trap of not being transferable again. So you you know you have to build that strategy in there. You know, I've seen people that have bought land. Um, one of my favorite counties to, to use as a case in point is Box Elder County, Utah. And I don't know if you're familiar with this county or not, but it is in the northwest corner of Utah. And it is beautiful land. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a very diverse um, um, 
I can't count it. I mean, they've got mountains and, and, and streams. It's just on the, um, kind of on the northwest side of the Great Salt Lake. It's a beautiful area. Some of the land is just really salt flats. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, plain old land, but then you've got some beautiful lands in there. And there's a lot, if you look online, there's a lot of land for sale in that area, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 acres. And you know what? It's cheap land. It's like $4,000 for 40 acres. Who wouldn't want 4,000, you know, 40 acres for $4,000? That's insane, right? But if you don't prepare on the front end and, and call the county, the planning and zoning office to under, understand, okay, well, what's, what can I do long term with this? Well, if you made that simple call, you would understand that you have to have 160 acres to build. Hmm. And so if you're trying to, to buy 40 acres and you, you're successful in that, and then you ultimately decide that you want to build, it's unbuildable because you don't have enough. The minimum is 160 acres. Now, if well, you're, let's back up though, because this 40 yeah. acres for four thousand dollars still in, is interesting to me. Yeah. Where, where is this? Box Elder County, Utah. Okay, Utah. No, I'm not interested anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't think you would be. So, you know, the the, the fact is, is that uh, you know that that 40 acres of land is great if you're only going to use it for recreational, right? You know, if you're gonna Go out there horseback riding, hunting, camping. I mean, you could have your own personal campground if you wanted to, of 40 acres. That's fantastic. It could be, ultimately, it could be land that, look, in, in the most difficult of times, I'm, you know, it, I could live off that 40 acres if I needed to, you know, if, if, if times got rough here. Uh, but essentially, if, if I stick up a, a shed that's actually a tiny house in the middle of it, it's off grid. Ain't nobody ever going to really care either. But right, that's if I, right. To try start trying to bring utilities or something in, I'm going to need to get into permitting, and uh, the minute it's you not going to happen. Look, the minute you have to deal with the government, you're going to get into all the red flags, and they're going to tell you you can't do anything with this land, right? Yeah. Uh, but you know, it, it's if you're not. If you're not preparing on the front end to, to understand what is my long-term vision of this property and will it sustain it and have that exit strategy in mind, then you are wasting your money and time. Wow. And I see it too many times. And how many acres do I need to build there? 160 acres. See, and then what people need to do is use their brains because I didn't know about this. Yeah. As soon as you know that, I said, well, how hard is that to do? I'm sitting on Landwatch right now, and I don't know. It might be a terrible piece, but... 240 acres for 27.5. Right. So all you need to do then if you want to be able to build is make sure you're buying enough of that cheap land so that you could. That's right. You know, but it, again, if you're just going into it and you fall in love with the fact that I want 40 acres. Yeah. Well, then you just stepped on a landmine because unless you're going to call the county and like I, I, I encourage everybody, whether you're, you're buying land from me or anybody else, I would encourage you, don't don't ever take my word for something. Like, call the county. Yeah. And in fact, I tell people, like, don't. And look. get that writing, because we've been through that. Yeah, too. right. Somebody on the phone said it was okay, and three years later, when the person's trying to do it, they can't find that person, and there's right. no record, and... You know, and it's it's very simple because you know you can call the you can call the county, and I tell everybody, like, when it, when they're asking me, like, hey, can I build a house on this? Well, here's my understanding, and then I encourage you to call the county planning department because, and like you said, get it in writing. Ask them for the, uh, the the county regulations that support the zoning of it, 
it's, I mean, in most cases, it's right on their website. You can just pull down the, the zoning type, and it gives you all of the, the, the minimum requirements to build there or, or do whatever you want to do. And this can be hard to get your head around, too, because, for instance, uh, just off to, to, to my west out in uh, in Parker County, there's a lot of land for sale. Now, it ain't cheap like that, but it's it's somewhat affordable. Land around here close to Dallas is getting stupid again, and that worries me long term. But as an aside, you, you, these places are unincorporated, um, and, and you would think that you could do anything you want there. When you look at these lots, and there's five, six acres, and I'm talking, you're out, even though you're close to the city, you're out in the country. Right. You could sit out, you could sit out there and shoot a 3006, and no one would call the police, and if anybody did, no one would care, unless you were shooting at somebody. Right. And you're thinking, there can't be any restrictions here, because Tarrant County, which is where I live, if you're unincorporated, there aren't any. There's one on unincorporated land, because Parker County doesn't want to lose uh, their, their tax base. They've snapped to this minimum size construction, Yeah. And on these, on any lot greater than two acres, which is what they all are, unless you're in a mobile home park, the minimum build size is 2,500 square feet. Right. So you have to build a 2,500 square foot house. What if you don't want one? And, right. that, and then that tells you right away what they're going to do. They're doing that for a reason because they're going to assess the crap out of it and they're going to come out there and hand you a big tax bill on a piece of land in the middle of a, of a cornfield. Yeah. And you know, he, Uh, look, since 1977, the average size of the house, uh, of the average house in America has doubled it. In 19, I think it was 1977. I might, I might miss a year there. I think the average was like, uh, 500 square feet was the average. I mean, that's, that's the average. Today, the average house in the U.S. is over a thousand square feet. But now you start to see, you do start to see a desire to, to go back smaller. I mean, I think that the, the, the recession that we had in 2008, kind of shook people and you kind of have that, that desire to go back smaller in a lot of cases. Plus the population is aging. And so, you know, they don't want bigger houses. I mean, so to your point, 2,500 square feet is a huge house in a time in which the population is starting to demand a smaller house. Yeah. I mean, it's, to put it in perspective, it's about the size of my house is right. 2,500 square feet, which we didn't buy this place for the house. We bought it for the land, the shop, the house, the whole package. But it was a very small four-bedroom, like ridiculously small four-bedroom, almost no living area. And what the people that did before us did is they took the garage and converted it into a master bedroom and bathroom and laundry room, and that opened up this whole living area. And then, you know, you've got an upstairs to it where the two larger bedrooms were. And those two bedrooms are, that all upstairs is over 800 square feet. It's there, and it's great when we have guests. But other than keeping some stuff up there, we don't go up there. Right. We don't need that space. It just happens to be here. So if I was built, my point is, if I was building this house, I wouldn't have built it that way. Right. So, so I don't need it. I mean, a lot of people don't need it. And but yet, and and the and then the kick in the teeth is they're only making you do it so that it's worth enough that they can tax you on it. Right. No, it's, it's exactly right. So then, so then again, it goes back to. If, if, if you're just looking for land and you don't know, so, so you go to that scenario, you're, you're looking for land and you think, oh, Parker County has cheaper land. Let me go out there. You buy this piece of land and never once do you stop to think about, well, what is the minimum size to build? Man, you now own this land that you cannot do what you want to do with it. So now you put yourself in a situation to where you, you become kind of that distressed, distressed owner and now you're paying taxes on something that you're not getting your money out of. 
And, and you've also not, when you were thinking about your exit strategy, you hadn't factored into the to the whole thing the the concept that when you went to market it, other other buyers might be smart enough to look for that restriction, and your ability then to get your hands off of that piece of land uh, is impaired, and your your whole exit strategy was skewed with improper information. That's right. That's right. And so again, just just go slow, you know, ask lots of questions, and think long term. And uh, yeah, we all can't predict the future, but essentially, if you start to think about and you know those limitations going into it, well, then it makes sense. And that, that's kind of like the, the, the fourth bullet is really not understanding the limitations of the land. And we've kind of weaved this into the exit strategy one. But again, you know, like think about that Box Elder County land. If, if you don't know that, hey, it's only good for, you know, recreational land, you're buying the 40 acres, you wasted your money. And I see this happen too a lot of times because, uh, you know, there, there's some land that is really, I mean, I'm in Florida. There's, there's, believe it or not, there's swamp land in Florida. I don't know if you knew that or not. Yeah. Uh, yeah I grew up uh, in Jacksonville, part of my yeah. childhood. So yeah, I'm familiar. So, you know, you go and you, you get some of these lands and I mean, um, you, you go and I actually had someone tell me the, uh, a few weeks ago that they were looking at this piece of property and it was, it's in the Tampa area. And it was on the Hillsborough River, and it, it looked like from the satellite maps, it looked like a, it looks like an island. It's a beautiful island, if you will. I mean, who wouldn't want to own an island? And uh, you know, I, I grew up in Tampa, so I I told him, I'm like, hey, look, there's no islands in the Hillsborough River. Like that that is swampland through and through. And they were blown away because they it were took trying a picture to picture at low tide. That's what yeah. they did. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, well, guess what? There's no low tide there. So, yeah. you know, essentially, you know, it, it, from a Google Earth map, it looks fantastic, but from reality, it's not. And so if you're not, if you're not understanding what, not only what the, the land limitations are, but to your point earlier of the, the government limitations on that land, well, then you have land that you can't do what you want to with. And that is, that is a, that is a landmine. That's a train wreck. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now we uh, we kind of skipped over the three deed types. We yeah, didn't get into that. So I mean, people just think I got the deed, I'm good, but not all deeds are the same. No, they're not. And so look, there's there there's a lot of different variations of deeds, but they really boil down to three different types. You know, one one that a lot of people are familiar with is the the quick claim deed. That is that is a very fast transfer of property. But the problem with that is that it only transfers whatever rights the seller has, and there's no guarantee that they have any rights. So think about the very first thing that I told you. You know, people are trying to transfer land that they don't really own. Yeah. If someone's trying to sell you land on a quick claim deed, yeah. well, then you, I'm not saying not to do it, but I'm yeah. telling you that you that should be your red flag that you want to know everything. That's when I'm spending the $116. To go through a title search and, and everything, um, because essentially a quick claim deed really only transfers whatever rights you have in the property. There's no recourse for clear title at all. And so if you're going to do that, one, uh, understand why they, they can't sell it with, with, a, with a better warranty or better deed. Two, do your due diligence, get that, get that uh, title search, pay the title search fee. And three, my last recommendation is I better have some understanding of who you are. Mm. Me personally, I, I would want to talk to you. I'd want to know you. I'd want to know why, because I, I want to. There, there's really no reason why, unless it's just a family-to-family transaction or a, you know a quick transaction. 
And I see too many times people buy property on quick claim deeds, and they think that all deeds are, are the same. Well, and I, I think it can even really end up being worse if you start thinking about it. So let's say that I did that with you. I had a piece of land that I had, I had any right to at all. And, I mean, I, had, I don't know. I had the right to pee on it. And I sell you a quick, uh, on a quick claim deed to, the, to that land. If you go to the state or county or whatever, say you were defrauded by me, I haven't defrauded you. I've sold you exactly what I said I had. The, my right. rights to that piece of land, whatever they may or may not be, that's all I've sold you. Yeah. So there's Jack, no recourse to come after me at that point, or it's difficult anyway. Yeah, and, and Jack, the other thing, too, to remember is that the recorder's office, it, their job is to record the documents that are presented to them. It's not their their job to look at a document and assess the validity of the document. Their job is to record it. So if, if you and I sign a quick claim deed, as long as it met the minimum requirements of the state or the county, that, you know, for example, in Florida, you know, it's got to say who, who prepared the deed. It's mm-hmm. got to have the parcel number, legal description. Witnesses have to sign it, what, whatever. As long as it meets that requirement, then their obligation is to record it. Now, that doesn't mean just because they record it that you're the, the official owner of the, the property. You know, the next step in that process is it gets to the assessor's office and the assessor uh, decides do, you know, is this really transferable property? And if they have doubts, then they're going to put a at all on it so that it looks like there's multiple owners and it clouds the title. Mm. And it's that's where you start to get into this mess. And so you, you just see a lot of properties that, that have at all ownerships on it, right? Yeah, and that's that's just all kinds of bad. And it and that's all kinds of hard to get rid of once it's there. Yeah, I mean, I, I know a few years ago you had someone else on your show talking about land, and they talked about quiet title, right? And you could take that that property through quiet title, and it's a, it's a judicial action. And you know, it's it's um, you could do it yourself, but I wouldn't recommend it. You know, it's practicing law to, to yourself, right? I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend that at all. Yeah. But but uh, you know, essentially, you could go and you could knock off the other other people because they'd have to produce evidence that showed that they were still owners of the property. It goes to who's paying the taxes and it's complicated, right? It, it's just a mess that do you really want to deal with that? Uh, it's not something I want to deal with. Well, it's certainly not something I want to deal with. That's, that's for dad gone. Sure. The, the uh, next, the next, the next deed type is actually a special warranty deed. And I, I see people all the time there, especially on the internet. They, they love to sell property, uh, with special warranty deeds. And I think there's something that people love about the word special because they accept it. But really all a special warranty deed is, is, is it's one more level of protection above a quick claim deed. And it just says, Hey, I guarantee that during my ownership of this property, that there were no liens or encumbrances filed against it. But that doesn't provide someone with any protection on prior liens. And again, it transfers whatever rights are owned. So if I don't really own anything, I can say, hey, I'm, I'm selling this to you on a special warranty deed. And I mean, people accept that. So again, this is a scenario where if someone's talking to you about a special warranty deed, maybe not the red flag goes up, but the yellow flag goes up to understand more questions. Okay, why why is this? Why are you selling this on a special warranty deed and not the Mac Daddy, which is the warranty deed? Uh, and so that, that's just another word of caution for, for everybody. No, I, that that makes perfect sense. So um, is there a way to, let's say, somebody that wants to do that may want to do it just because it's easy, 
So yeah. like quick flame feed or something. Is there a way to have the conversation that kind of leads them over? Like it's not really that hard to do this right type of conversation with that seller. Yeah, I mean the the conversation that I would have is, hey, listen, uh, you know, why why are you choosing to use a special warranty deed as opposed to a full warranty deed? And you know, it could just be ignorance. You know, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that there's always a malicious intent. I would say that maybe, maybe they don't know what the differences are. A lot of people don't realize that there's different deed types. Um, but essentially, you know, what I would what I would kind of push them towards is, hey, if if we're going to do this, then I, I need to really understand why. Why are you choosing this deed? I would rather you choose the warranty deed or put this on a warranty deed. Um, you know, if if in doubt, then uh, again, slow down, ask lots of questions, and get to the bottom of it. And if it's an ignorance thing and and they just didn't know, and then they correct it, no problem. But there are certain properties that it does make sense to do a special warranty deed on. I mean, I, I've got I've got uh, hunt sites in Florida where um, you're it's it's purely recreational land. You're not gonna okay. you're not gonna build on there, and uh, you know essentially there's no reason to have a warranty deed on that, right? I mean, I could, but I can't. I'm not necessarily because it's cheaper property. It's recreational only. You're not. It's not worth it. it. Maybe it's not built. It's not worth it to go through the full title search and escrow and all that other stuff that you would normally want to go through. Um, simply because of the fact that it's 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 like no one wants that land unless you want to be in the the hunt club, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, again, some circumstances make sense there. But I still prefer to to buy and sell on a warranty deed. Because this is not that the, the expense isn't that much different. It's not, you know. Okay, so here's an example. Like there's a there's an area here in Florida that um you, you know you can buy a point three one acre pr- property in this hunt club. Okay. And I think that these properties sell for like a hundred and um a hundred and I'm sorry about eight hundred dollars. Okay. Okay. So. Okay, like for me to go through a title search and spend 150 <laughs> bucks, it just doesn't make sense. Now, yeah. in that case, you know, your your due diligence isn't going to be the same as it would be if I were going to do something that's more of a buildable lot. So, again, it, it just really depends. But if I can do a title search, I mean, some like, and a great example is I can do some of these properties or, you know, when I look at some of these properties in this hunt club, well, the same person has owned title to this property since 1970-something, Right. I, that that's pretty that's a pretty good transaction that you can put onto a warranty deed. But who's really going to put liens? It's not like anybody's ever built on that property anyway, right? Liens. The county doesn't care about it because it's it's hunt, hunting land. Yeah. Uh, so again, it's the, the risk is lower, and if you can do the warranty deed, great. But essentially, if someone's talking to you about something other than the Mac Daddy warranty deed, use caution. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, in the situation you just described, do do I really care? I mean, that, that's kind of how I feel about that, it. It's eight hundred bucks. That's right. I, I'm buying a membership for eight hundred bucks. The that's land right. is how my membership is is quantified, I guess. That's, and, and that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever to right. to, to make a big deal over that. Or if you know, if I did something similar, if I bought myself a good, I don't know, a thousand acres of West Texas desert land and said, uh, we're going to have a place out there to hunt mule deer, whitetail, and javelina, and, you know, you get a square of a quarter acre for, I don't know, a thousand bucks, um, and that, that means you have access to the whole thing, but that's your quarter acre, then 
it doesn't. It, that wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't even really matter to you, honestly, if you really had that 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 piece of land or not. If I set up something that was more of a, a land holding uh, trust to do that with, which is how I would do something like that. So whether I die or whatever happens, it's just it's a it's a it's almost like a land co op at that point. That's right. Yeah, and, and you know that's the, that's the other thing. It's like in that land that I was just telling you about, like the eight hundred dollar land. Okay, a quick claim deed makes sense, right? Like, I, I wouldn't have any concerns in the world with having a quick claim deed on that type of property. But man, the minute I start to really get into some money, I want I want the the warranty. Or I want that warranty. The, the land is something I'm going to improve the value of to the point where I'm going to want to sell it. So, right. if I can get land right now, let's say two thousand dollars an acre for 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 three acres, six grand, ah, whatever. You know, I mean, is if there's any, if I can get it that cheap and I can get it fast because I can close, it seems like a good idea. Quick, quick claim deed or whatever. But if I go build a, a two hundred thousand dollar house on that six thousand dollars worth of land, and now I want to sell it for two hundred six thousand dollars. Now that person is is going to be vested a hell of a lot more than me from the initial transaction standpoint is going to care, right? And there therein lies back to one of the landmines not having an exit plan or strategy in mind, right? So if you if you don't know what you're going to do with the property, well then going into it with the wrong deed could could change the way that you're doing this long term. Okay. All I can think of through this, especially as we start talking about these really cheap pieces of property. Is like West Texas desert land for $150 an acre and, and stuff like that. Stuff that's being sold on eBay. Is any of that stuff a good idea? You know, I, I think uh, it, it depends on on your usage, right? You know, like if you if you're going to use the land for the intended purpose, yeah, you can get some great stuff. I mean, if if you're going to use it for hunting land or or um, four wheeling, uh, I guess four wheeling, ATV, camping. I mean. I, I mean, me. I, I, I'd love to, to have uh, you know just a large campsite for myself, just out in the middle of nowhere. Like, for example, let's take that box elder land. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't care about having forty acres out there just for camp. But if I, if I, if I'm, if I know what the intended outcome is going to be, then there's no problem with it. But again, if I don't follow my my rules and say, I let me figure out what my exit strategy is going to be, and I'm buying desert land in order to to build a house or to to uh, to you know, to uh, for for long term capital appreciation, well then I'm crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. So so no no begin with the end in mind. I I think another thing that we have to look at with with this is access. So I've seen a lot of times where some of this lands for sale, and just by pulling up a satellite image, you go well, okay, I could use this as a recreational land or whatever, but. How the hell do I get there? Yeah. You know, because it's surrounded by other people's land, and there's no obvious roads sometimes. And, you know, is there a right of easement to the property? There's land that literally I, – I, I know it sounds stupid, but I've seen land where you almost need a helicopter to get to your own land. Yeah. You know, for, for example, like there, there are parts of um, – for, for example, Nevada, northern Nevada – where when they did the deeds, they, they put in uh, like a 30-foot easement around every single property. So that, that's easement so that other people can get there. So you sure. may not have a direct road, but that's, that is deeded. It's in the deed. It's actually in the deed. You see it in the legal description, you know, 30 with the exception of 30 feet, which is used for roads and, you know, for entrances. There are parts of Arizona have the same thing. But then, you know, I can I can point to you map after map where properties. Think about that that island island front lot in, in Tampa I talked to you about. 
that is a that is a parcel. Uh, I mean, the, the county has it as, as its own parcel, but yet you can't. There's no land there, okay? And uh, yet they continue to collect taxes on this land. That there's, there's no way that you could ever get to because there's there's no road, there's no easement. You have to ask your neighbors uh, for that and probably pay them for it. And uh, your neighbor can change that. That's my that's right. thing. You can find a place where neighbors like, I don't care, man. We all got to get along. It's fine. And he kicks off and dies, and his no. just be blunt. His kid's an asshole. Yeah, you know, or the guy his kid sells the land to is an asshole, and, yeah. and all of a sudden, yeah, it's going to be a thousand dollars a month for you to get access through there. Yeah, you gotta yeah. pay a toll, boy. That's right. <laughs> pay your toll. <laughs> And stuff like that can happen. I mean, it, it, because that kind of person doesn't even really want to let you in. They just figure, well, if you give me that much money, I'll, I'll do it anyway. Yeah. And, and you know, I, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I've seen property too. And, and don't, don't be misled because you look on Google Earth or something, you see like this street there. Because I've seen properties where, you know, Google, Google Earth will look like there's a street there. And then if you take away the, if you take away the, the fact that there's a street, you know, you, you hide the label, if you will, from Google Earth, and you zoom in on it, you, you realize there's no street, right? Like, it's there's a platted street, but they <laughs> never built the street, okay, or, or the road. And so, again, don't – I'm all for um, – I'm all for, you know, I, I think it's okay to buy land on eBay. You just have to do your due diligence, right? And that's where sometimes eBay is um, – you know, where you have a 10-day time period or seven-day time period to make a decision, you know, I, I would say if you're going to sit there and do the do the proper due diligence on it, which is okay, is it have road access? Can I call the county? I, you know, I want the parcel number so I can see who the owner is. I want to do my own uh, kind of title search on this stuff. Um, you know, e- even if I'm not going to a title com- search company, I can still go to the recorder's office and follow the deeds back to the beginning of time. To make sure that okay, the person who, who who's selling the land is the owner of it. Because I wonder sometimes when I see this stuff, you know, like you know, ten acres for five hundred dollars an acre in West Texas or something like that, five grand. Or I've seen less than that. I've seen ten acres for nine hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, a guy might do a quick claim deed on eBay. You nine hundred dollars. You might go out there for ten years. No one goes there anyway. Right. You say you own the place. You bought it. The few locals around there figure, well, who the hell would say they bought this if they didn't? <laughs> and, and it turns out you don't own nothing. Right. And, and that guy's done left. He's done run his half million dollars worth of business on eBay to dumb people like you, and he's sitting down in the Caribbean on a piece of land he actually owns. So uh, I, I referenced this county earlier, Box Elder County, Utah. So on Box in Box Elder County, there is a ton. I can't. I can't even count. There's a ton of 0.25 acre parcels okay that are selling for a couple hundred bucks okay now think about what i told you how many acres did you need to build in that one portion of the county like the western 160 part of the 160 so what someone did and the county knows this and this this I, I can't tell you how many times i get a call from someone from box elder county in this situation someone uh someone went in there and bought some property, and I don't know if they bought 160 acres, 640 acres. I don't really know. I've never traced it back. But sure. what they did was they illegally subdivided this land into quarter-acre parcels and sold it online. Gotcha. Okay. So just last week I was talking to someone. Her, her She fell into multiple traps here. One, her, her dad ruled her the property. She's been paying taxes on the property for 15 years. 
So she's been paying. I think the ta- the taxes are cheaper. They're like nine bucks a year for fifteen. Sure, years. but you okay. it's your money. You still pay. That's right. So she she's been paying this, and then she gets an interest to to sell it. She I think she wanted to sell it for five hundred bucks or something. That's what the assessed value is. Yeah. From the county, and so I I'm looking at it. I, I already knew. I said, look, it's it's an illegally subdivided property. You can't even sell the property. You know, she's like, but I've been paying taxes to the county for, for 15 years. I know. That's ridiculous. The county knows that that's done, and they continue to collect the taxes on it, as opposed to telling you, just redeem the land to the county, and then we'll fix it and, and you know, piece all this stuff back together and fix it. They're still collecting their nine bucks uh, a month or a year from, from all these from properties. Thousands of there. people, though. Thousands of people. And then I, I told her, I'm like, you know, if, if – Man, that it really. I'm I'm surprised that someone hasn't hired an attorney to go after the the chuckleheads that did this, trace it all the way back, uh, or even that the county hasn't done that. Um, but essentially, you've got you've got thousands of people. I I I bet you you know like if they took four six hundred forty acres and broke them up, that's that's what four thousand owners easily. Mm. Uh, I mean, you've got a ton of people there that that are just out a lot of money and. And you wonder how many times that person might have done that, right? right like, right. I'll, I'll, once I get done with this one, uh, or I think that maybe I'm getting a little breathing on my neck, I'll just let the rest of it sit there and create a new, you know, Joe Blow's uh, LLP, buy yeah. another 160 acres of it, cut that up into a couple thousand parts, and yeah. and do that again. Yeah, I mean, that, and that uh, uh, interesting story, that hunt land I was telling you about in Florida. You know where the properties are quarter acres for uh, like eight hundred bucks. What's interesting about that is that the developers of that land, the original developers of that land, they went in there, and this was like the ultimate in, in uh, Florida swampland scams back in the seventies, sixties, and seventies. Is they went in there and they bought, I think it's seventy square miles of land. It's it's uh, forty four thousand acres. They went in there and they basically sold forty four thousand acres of land. And uh, this land is a lot of it is you know swamp land, a lot of it's inaccessible land. And really, what's happened is since the 70s, um, you know, with all these people owning the, this property, the, they've they've formed a property owners association, kind of a hunt club, if you will. Mm-hmm. That they've gone out there and they've made made it so that once you own a deed in the property, uh, you can't. In certain areas, you can build a, a permanent camp, but in other areas, you just have access to all of the the common property, if you will. Sure. And I mean that that is kind of a great example of of, of um, community, if you will, building the property back up together. And then it it's but you you know if, if you don't know what you're buying back even today, you could end up with land that you can't even get to except by helicopter, <laughs> right? Uh, or airboat, at least. That's, that's right. right. There, that's I mean, that's, that's right. There's a reason they built them things in Florida first. There's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, what are some things then when we buy land, whether it's desert land, swamp land, or or, or really good land that we can do that maybe instantly increase the value of land? Because one way you can get the the hundred acres you want is by buying and flipping some land to get some money, so you can do that and working with more affordable stuff. Yeah. So any any type of little improvements that you can make to land, and I mean that is one of the things that I do love about land is that it's really a blank blank canvas. So if there's anything that you can do to it that 
it will instantly add greater value to it. So as an example, there's a lot of land that hasn't been surveyed in this country. You know, like there's no survey on the land. If you just go and do a, a survey for a few hundred bucks, well, then that will instantly take the, the property up in value because now it's it's surveyed land, right? You know, you can mm. produce a survey to it. And I'm not going to say that it's, you know, going to triple the price of the land, but I can easily take a piece of property that I bought for, you know, a few thousand dollars and easily add another thousand onto it now because it's surveyed. And I, I can say, here's the boundaries of it. It's staked. People will, will pay more for that. Well, I can tell you I have refused to buy land because it wasn't surveyed and they didn't want to pay for it as right. part of the sale. So clearly it's important to people. It is, right? You know, and so if you can take something that's not surveyed and then improve it, so be it. If you can take, um, if you can take and, and do little things like, um, just, and I say little because there's certain areas where you, it's just, uh, impossible to get power out to just because of how far it is. But if you can, work to get power out there or put a well out there or do something that will add some greater value to that property. Uh, everything on that raw property will, will kind of come back to you with more because now there's an improvement on it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and you have a website, right? That you're, you're, you're putting yeah. together. It seems like it's a little bit young yet. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, um, you can visit landmodo.com. It's www.landmodo.com, landmodo.com. And there, there's a lot of good information up there about, you know, mistakes to avoid. Uh, there's, there's, uh, training that, that we're taking, that we're building that will help through some questions that people have regarding land ownership, things like mineral rights. Uh, so we'll have kind of web webinars available so people can, can learn more about mineral rights. Uh, you know, some of the, the pitfalls that you and I just talked about now, just kind of in greater detail. Uh, and then obviously there's some land up there that we make available. A lot of the land that we put up there, I mean, we, we have a very active kind of insiders group or buyers list that, that really we take properties to first when we have them. And so we don't have a lot of properties that go right to our website. Uh, we, we kind of take that to our buyers list. So we're, we're able to take good Good properties. We, we match up with people that want it, and we kind of use our email list. Mm. Uh, to, so instead to, of trying to be another land watch or something like that, that's just you know the way a lot of us pass our days when we still have regular jobs. And the boss ain't looking. You, you're trying to be more of an active network, so to speak. Yeah. So I mean, we we do buy we do buy land across the country. We sell land across the country, and so essentially, what happens is um, when we get land available for sale, I, I take it to my insiders group, if you will, right, right, right away. So they're the first to know of the properties that we have available. Um, and then after probably 72 hours or, you know, a week, some, somewhere in that time frame, if the prop, if that property is still available, then it ends up on our website as kind I of uh, excess. So we don't necessarily advertise every single property that we have available for sale on our website because a lot of times they get picked up by our, by our active buyers list, if you will. So how, how does somebody work with you then and become part of that network? Yeah, if you, if you just go to landmodo.com again, and uh, there's, there's a significant number of, of blocks that will ask you for your email address. Put the email address in there. Uh, you'll get onto our, uh, our list. And then as, as trainings become available, you'll be notified of those as well. Those are free trainings, uh, you know, educational opportunities. And then uh, as properties become available, they're the first to know. 
Very, very cool. And again, the website they can find that at? Landmodo.com. L-A-N-D, like land, M-O-D-O.com. Landmodo. Well, cool, man. I appreciated having you on the show today, Scott. Um, thanks for being here, and uh, thanks for taking time to be with us today. And, folks, again, website, landmoto.com. There will, of course, be a link in today's show notes. And again, one more time, man, thanks for being with us today. Jack, thank you so much. Folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierka today along with Scott Todd, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times are tough or even if they don't. And, heck, with that, why don't we play us a little bit of a different song for everybody uh, dreaming about owning that piece of land way out there at the end of today's show. Our houses are protected by the good Lord and a gun And you might meet them both if you show up here, not welcome, son Our necks are burnt, our roads are dirt, and our trucks ain't clean The dogs run loose, we smoke, we chew and fry everything Out here We out us that end up serving overseas If it was up to me I'd love to see this country run Like it used to be Like it ought to be Just like it's done Out here
protected by the good Lord and a gun. And you might meet them both if you show up here, not welcome, son.